If you're ever having a bad day and you need a little cheering up, maybe working from home seems to have turned into living at work, maybe you've mistakenly pressed reply all and now the whole company knows you're rich in a monologue about Sammy and sales, perhaps the cat has finally disjointed your sofa, and you find yourself thinking, surely, surely there must be a little more to life than this. I can recommend a restorative clip of the physicist Brian Cox on TikTok. It's a slice of him in an interview where he's railing, frankly, at people like me and you who sometimes feel that this isn't all quite enough. What more do you want? He asks of us with a charming incredulity. When I see people who say, I want more than this, there must be more to it, he says. I ask, what do you mean? And this is the kicker. He says, the ingredients in our bodies were assembled in the hearts of long dead stars over billions of years, and they've assembled themselves spontaneously into temporary structures that can think and feel and explore, and then those structures will decay away again at some point, and in the very far future, there'll be no structures left. So there we are. We exist in this little window when we can observe this magnificent universe. Why do you want any more? By simply and poetically changing the context for my day, for my life, really, it's entirely changed my sense of frustration, and at the same time, maybe just a little more interested in astrophysics. Hello, I'm Adam Morgan, and this is the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish. And the original idea when I started the podcast was that each guest in each episode of this podcast would conveniently illustrate a particular theme. I had a hypothesis that there were eight key dimensions to making something more interesting, creating a more compelling conflict, for instance, or a larger-than-life character, introducing competition or drama or consequence or community, and that those eight guests would individually allow us each to explore one of those themes one by one. And with that in mind, I was really interested in this new generation of science teachers and the way, like Brian Cox, they use changing the context of a scientific topic to create interest around it and indeed make you rethink your own life and existence and your perspective on it. So, for instance, if I tell you that salt is the only edible rock, by changing the context around an everyday overlooked item, I'm making it freshly interesting for you and I'm perhaps curious about why other rocks aren't edible and what would happen if I tried to eat them. So I wanted to interview a practicing science teacher who was very good at doing just this. And a friend at the Department for Education in the UK put me in touch with Addison Brown, who'd just been at the centre of a recent teacher recruitment television ad called Every Lesson Shapes a Life. If you Google Every Lesson Shapes a Life Tuesday, you can watch Addison in the ad. So when I sat down to talk with Addison about teaching science for this episode, I imagined we were going to talk mainly about the importance of changing the context, because that's what I thought I was really interested in. But he, of course, was much, much more fascinating about the challenges of engaging and keeping interest in the classroom than just talking about context. So let me just highlight a couple of things to listen out for in this episode, and then we'll get into it. The key thing to note here is that the importance of being interesting is significantly different for being a teacher to some of the other guests we're talking to. Because, as Addison says, the job of a teacher is to make sure that all information goes into long-term memory. So this is a very different challenge about being interesting to the entertainer whom the cost of being dull is commercially significant, but essentially short term. So there's a different colour to our overall question for us here. How can I be interesting in a way that helps the listener store this in their long term memory? And the challenge of achieving this around teaching has led to a lot of research about how to do it effectively, which Addison talks to and is using in his teaching. I'm just going to briefly note here three ideas that he's going to come on and talk about, just so we are familiarising ourselves with them before we get to them. The first is the idea of cognitive load. Cognitive load argues that the bit of our mind that processes that what we are doing can only handle so much information at one time before we hit cognitive overload 
and just can't absorb anything else. So as a teacher, you can increase your chance of cognitive overload with your students by delivering too much information and delivering it badly. Or you can decrease your chance of hitting cognitive overload by breaking the information down into smaller bits and delivering it in a way that's easier to process by making it more interesting in part. The second idea he references is chunking. This is part of the solution to cognitive overload that I just mentioned, breaking the topic into accessible chunks, maybe four, five, six, seven minutes at a time, and taking the students through it chunk by chunk. And he'll talk about how he breaks his lessons into chunks for us. The third concept he talks about is dual coding. Dual coding is the view that our minds process and store information both verbally and visually, or indeed sensorily. And so the best way to ensure a bit of information sticks in our memory is to share it in a way that combines verbal and visual stimulus that are interrelated to each other. That way, I have twice as much chance of retrieving it later from my long-term memory. So, cognitive load, chunking, and dual coding, all really important ideas for how we turn the ephemerally interesting into long-term memories. I learned a huge amount from Addison talking about how he uses them, and I hope you do too. Let's meet him. So, Addison, thank you so much for joining me today. As a teacher and as a dad at the end of half term, I can imagine you have one or two other things you'd really rather be doing, but thank you very much for coming and talking to me. I've honestly been really looking forward to it. I think um, I'm excited about this conversation. So, listen, just paint a picture for us. What are you teaching to who, where? So, I am currently teaching all three sciences. I teach in Atherton, which is in Manchester, way, the northwest, and I teach from age 11 and 12 up to 16 but yeah that's all three sciences at the minute biology chemistry and physics and typically in a class what percentage of your pupils are naturally interested in the topic i would say that the interest probably decreases through the years so in year seven when you have kids coming up who have a natural love of science whether that's come from primary school from parents or just a natural curiosity of children to be asking lots of questions and then as the years go on, hopefully it's not due to teaching, but that sort of curiosity dies down a little bit until you get to years 10 and 11, where the natural curiosity, the engagement in science is, I would say out of a class of 30, you've probably got on average five to 10 who are really wanting to learn and wanting to know more and more about science. Now, I'm not saying that this is putting the other 20 kids away. What I'm, what I'm saying is these are the kids who have an aptitude for science and this is something that they are interested in and want to either learn about in the future or take on in the future i would say and so for that you know the two-thirds who aren't as interested what's the cost of being dull for them massively depends on the way you look at it for me i believe that i know that some people aren't going to become doctors i know that that some people have no interest in becoming theoretical scientists and i completely understand that and for me if they've got five hours of science a week with me it's about them learning as much as they can and becoming better people curious people who are asking good questions and becoming good critical thinkers i've got students who i know want to push on they've spoke to me about wanting to do something within the sciences but like say for those over 20 keeping them engaged and wanting to learn more in a topic they might not be fussed about it's difficult but i've got the understanding that it's not just about quantitative chemistry it's not just about chemical changes or stem cells it's about them asking questions and becoming curious about the surroundings and the natural world and i think having that kind of mentality doesn't necessarily make it easier but it allows me as a teacher to think these students are, might gain a little bit more might have a little bit more interest a little bit more engagement let's start to break it down a bit so first of all just in terms of getting them to grasp concepts that they're not naturally interested in like me so i was you know i studied kind of arts latin and greek i just 
nothing was interesting in science to me. How would you get me to be more interested in a scientific concept? I think we're lucky in, within the sciences in that everything that you teach in science is relatable. And even if you are going photosynthesis, which on the sort of the grand scheme of things, if you take a back step and you think about plants photosynthesizing, that can become quite dull very quickly upon the demeanor of the teacher. And there's a lot of kids who have no care in the world for something like that. For me, you would start quite simply with asking the question of why do other planets in other solar systems and other galaxies, why might they have different colored plants? For example, so for us, we've got mainly green foliage, but on other planets with other suns and other wavelengths of light, there could be a completely red planet, a purple planet, and it's just little things like that might sort of draw in. And at that beginning five, ten minutes of a lesson, just that title, it can be as simple as just having a title, which brings about that curiosity straight away. That's your first step. That's the main thing that is going to drag people in. And as well, it's the relationships. It's knowing your students. If you're doing something and you've got students in the class who are like dogs, if you could target anything within the sciences towards that. I mean, I've got a dog and I use my dog regularly in my lessons. His pictures come up quite a lot. And we were doing forces and if I've got a picture of my dog with his head out the window and its tongue going, why does this happen? Might not be for everybody's taste, but there'll be a lot more kids in there who are thinking, oh, what's this about? So the first five minutes, kind of very important to make it relatable, either through um, a kind of question that gets them their imagination engaged or by relating it to a dog or a cat or something they're interested in. So what's the next, right? So talk, talk me through the kind of the middle 30 minutes then in that case. What are you doing at that point? That middle 30 minutes is having a hook on that beginning title that we spoke about and being able to really bring them in with anecdotes, stories, analogies and metaphors and trying to really take the concept, break it down into small chunks that allow the students to really engage and making each one of those chunks so accessible that it becomes more interesting. So give me an example of a chunk. So if you're giving a lesson you've been teaching recently and how you've chunked it down, for instance. So we've just started doing acids and alkalis. So in year 10, GCSE's content, quite difficult to start off with. And you've got a massive set of topics within chemical changes. And you've got a lesson within an hour. You're probably going to maybe answer three or four questions that you must be able to access before we can move on. And the first one would be, what colours are they on the pH scale? And within that, you can make that so relatable by having the pH scale in front of them, having 1 to 14, acid to alkali, but actually give me an example. So stomach acid is going to be a 2, it's going to be red. Bleach is going to be 14. So again, like I say you've got that engagement, you've got kids involved in a topic that's quite difficult, but then you're moving on to, well, what happens if we start mixing them together? And it's like, well, I'm thinking back to when I was taught this and it was quite simple. You were told what happens when they are mixed together. It's written on the board. It's a couple of sentences. I have a copy down in your book or you told it and you put it in your own words. But now because of engagement and wanting to try and get something out of the kids, you're thinking, right, has anybody ever seen a Friends episode where they go to the beach and one of them stung by a jellyfish? And what do they do? Well, you might urinate on that person's foot. Why? Um, if you get stung by a bee, what's the best thing you can use in your kitchen to stop it from hurting? So then you've got this idea that if you're mixing different things that are in the real world, it's actually useful, because that's the main question you get asked as a teacher is, when am I ever going to use this? 
And there's a very interesting moment in the commercial that you're in where you're working with a class and there's a boy who says, I just don't get it, sir. And you say, all right, let's try it a different way. And then you appear to get them all out in the middle of the room. Tell us a little bit about what's happening then. That's something that I've used in my teaching since year one. It's a really interesting, engaging way for students to understand that for a solid liquid and gas, they have different properties. They have different ways in which they move. And instead of having a drawing on the board or explaining to them, getting them out of their chairs into act as a particle, add a bit of drama into it, they can physically see that a solid, even though it stays still, still vibrates. So you get the kids to stand up and shake and you always get one or two who refuse to stand up and get involved, but they can still see what's happening. And, and then you say, right, so we're going to move to a liquid and you need more energy. And what are you going to do if you've got more energy? If I give you 20 Aribo and a bottle of Lucozade, what are you going to start doing? And they start bumping into each other. And it's exactly the same in theory for a liquid. And then, right, I'm going to put the room, I'm going to make it so warm that you want to get out. So how are you going to do that? And it's like, well, we're going to move around. We're going to bounce around the room and we're really going to start getting out of this boundary. And that's the movement from a liquid to a gas. And like I say, I think a lot of teachers will use that up and down the country. But yeah, it's interesting that a lot of people that spoke to me like, well, you'd never do that in a class. It's like, well, actually, yeah, that's sort of my standard practice. And I'm sure I've seen other teachers do it as well. Having the title, having the metaphors, having the stories is something that everybody can get engaged in. Everybody can sort of have that access. And that's the main thing. Everybody needs to be able to access the content. Yeah, there's, it's very interesting, is it, that point about access and inclusion versus exclusion, that sense that actually being dull is a form of exclusion. And, uh, and clearly, one of the things you're trying to do, as you say, is really include people. And I, I was going to ask you a little bit about sort of smiling while learning. I, I was doing a bit of research for this conversation and I saw the TED Talk. You might have seen it by Sal Khan, who is the hedge fund manager, you know, who starts out by posting algebra tutorials for his cousins on YouTube. And he reads a comment from a complete stranger who'd stumbled across one of his videos saying, this is the first time I smiled doing a derivative. <laughs> and he thinks, okay, you know, actually there's a new way to learn here. And so he sets up the Khan Academy and flips the classroom. But tell me a little bit about smiling while doing derivatives. How important is warmth and engagement and humor in what you do? One of my main aims in the classes, and something I'm very proud of is that I would like to say that a lot of my kids who come into my class want to be in my class. It's the greeting on the way in. It's the positive relationship. A lot of teachers will be like, well, no, it's not about fun. It's about getting the message across. But as you say, I think if you can get the message across in a way that brings about a smile, that something that is engaging, something that the kids can almost find amusing. I think humor is a massive part of teaching and being able to have something that the kids can dual code, that they can think, oh, I remember that because this bit was quite funny about it or Sir made us do this and there is evidence, there is research behind dual coding and it wouldn't surprise me having a smile associated and a laugh associated with different aspects is really quite worthwhile. Dual coding is it's it's a really important way of making sure that students can associate a piece of information with either a drawing or a diagram or an action. So a, a simple one for drawing an atom is just a simple diagram that anytime you put that information on the board, there's a labeled diagram. So the kids can always associate that that information equals that diagram. And that can come in many forms. It's not necessarily just diagrams. It can be pictures. I know a few teachers who are starting to use memes and TikToks and even music. There was research in that some teachers were using smells in the classroom to associate with different different topics. So 
putting lavender, I can't remember what it was. It was something like putting lavender candles on. Kids came in the room and they smelt it. It was like, oh, we're doing chemistry. Because they have that dual coding, because they have that access and going, right, I'm linking this. Creating those links increases your cognitive load, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. So, so I, I'm really fascinated by this. So there's a lot of imagination that you're talking about coming through into teaching. And I was I was reading one, one of my favorite examples, actually, that got me very interested in teaching was a, a female teacher in the, the Midwest United States who, teach, who uses shaving foam to teach polynomial equations. So she's got a kind of class of, I don't know, 15-year-olds or something, and they're all busy trying to sort of text each other. And she says, right, we're all going to clear our desks now. I'm going to give you a can of shaving foam each, and we're going to do these polynomial equations in shaving foam on our desks. And she says, it's great because they put their phones away because they don't want to get anything on that. They, they focus on that. They can remember what a polynomial equation and probably exactly that same polynomial equation is a form of dual coding, possibly, I suppose, from that point of view. And and the more you read about examples like that, and the ones you talk about, you realize that there's this been some blossoming of imagination in the kind of teaching profession that just didn't exist, you know, when I was being taught. So what's what's happened? Why is that emerging within teaching? Is that just there's a whole new generation of people like you who are really wanting to engage in a different way? Or is it that pupils are more demanding these days? You've got to be more imaginative because they're so distracted by what's going on here? There's many levels to it. And I think the first part of that I would say is there are teachers who have different ideas. I think the access that we've got to the internet and the access we've got to ideas and sharing ideas and seeing things, whether it's on Instagram or whether it's just you've searched a YouTube clip and different people have ideas such as the shaving foam. You can see that on a TikTok or whatever people watch and they oh that's a good idea I might use that I think that is a key reason as to why it's probably more frequent now after a conversation with my mom who's a teacher she believes that there's been a big change she's been teaching for 30 years a little bit due to maybe the behavior side of it in that there was better behavior then than there was now so a lot of teachers were just aimed at the academic knowledge this is what you need to know and it kind of makes sense and then I just started probing her a bit with it and she was trying to explain that but nowadays because students are maybe a little bit more difficult in their behavior management maybe teachers are having to come up with ways to keep them engaged and these ways are now spreading out into activities they're spreading out into imagination and and, and developing curiosity and having these questions or metaphors and it's something where maybe we are doing it to cater to a more difficult set of students and they're great kids, but the attention and what they expect in that short period of time, it, it, it must be different than it was 20, 30, even 10 years ago for when, for when I was at school. I'm, I'm looking at that. I'm thinking there's a big thing for us on chunking. Lots of research, lots of positive research on chunking and making information to smallest bits possible so that kids can access it. But then I'm thinking back to when I was at school and like, I can't remember my teachers giving me 10 minutes of a small bit of information that you must digest to then move forward to the next 10 minutes and let's assess those 10 minutes. I remember lessons where it was, this is what we're doing. There's an hour, go and do it. So that's really interesting. So chunking. So in a, so typically, in a, how long are your lessons? 40 minutes? A, an hour for us. An hour, an hour. Okay, so how many chunks typically do you break that into? Well, we've just rewrote the scheme of, scheme of learning. I would say that each lesson is probably going to be about three or four chunks within those three or four chunks you've got to imagine that there's 10-15 minutes at the start of the lesson to get the kids into the room to do some kind of retrieval practice and then you have to test and when I say test I mean low stakes like we do formative assessment we do assessment then and there so yeah you're talking three or four really small bits in your lesson especially for an hour that's you're talking 10 minutes and even that 
I know there's some kids who can't focus for that amount of time. Really? Okay. When we talked before, you talked about teaching being an act. Tell me a bit more about what it means for teaching to be an act and how you have to kind of adapt within a lesson to keep it interesting and, and involve those people who just don't seem to be, for whatever reason, still engaging with it, whatever you're doing. It's a big thing at the minute, adaptive teaching, in that what you are doing in that moment in time might not be working and you need to stop and you need to go back and you need to do it again. And it's a really big internal battle because we have such a massive curriculum in that every lesson is so precious because it's it's not like it used to be in that you teach a lesson for a unit of information and then you move on to the next one and you move on to the next one because what if the kid doesn't get it? What if you've got half of your class that don't understand the concept that you're teaching? Do you just move on because the other half have got it? It's this gap in disadvantage. And so as an adaptive teacher, you as, as this act, you've got to be able to go, actually, no, we need to stop. I've, I've done my formative assessment. I've had Luke and 70% of you don't understand that. But then you've got to ask the question, they didn't get it the first time. So doing it again, is that going to make a difference? So you've got to change the way that you're doing it. Maybe there's a different metaphor. Maybe there's a different aspect in which you can change in that moment in time. And it's a big part of planning now in that when you're planning lessons, it's not necessarily what's in, in, in the lesson. You've got to now anticipate where things could go wrong, why they went wrong, and what you're going to do about it. That's fascinating. I mean, they're so different from what I was imagining planning for a lesson would be like, but it makes perfect sense, really. Yeah, it, it's 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 something you, you've got to break down. Like we were talking about these chunks, and you've got to think that there's these small amounts of information. And if my kids don't understand that an acid and alkali are from one to six and eight to 14 in the, in the pH scale, if they don't get that after being informed, and we've practiced it. There's no point in practicing over and over again because you're just practicing bad technique. It's it's the idea that practice makes perfect. Well, it doesn't. Perfect practice makes perfect. You can practice kicking a football terribly for 10,000 hours and you're just really good at being bad at football. So one of the things, in terms of trying new things, one of the things that I loved when we were talking before was you talking about changing the context for a topic, taking a topic that seemed very abstract and difficult and just completely changing the context for it and therefore making it relatable. Can you just give me kind of an example or two of that? For instance, covalent bonding is a GCSE topic in which we have to get the message across to students that two non-metals join in a specific way. And they do this by sharing electrons. The big part in it is that, first of all, make it relatable. They are joining because they are sharing. Covalence, if you cooperate with someone, what do you do? You work with them. If you communicate with someone, you work with them. So this, this prefix, co is important. They are sharing the working together. That's not a bad start. We, we kind of understand that. They're sharing electrons. The kids understand the sort of analogy behind it. But then you can take that one step further and say, right, but having these covalent bonds, these really strong covalent bonds, they can lead to amazing things. If you have giant covalent structures, you can have things like diamonds, the hardest natural structure in the world. And the fact that these covalent bonds are not just forming on this planet, but if you go to Saturn, it's raining diamonds. It's raining these giant covalent bonds. And then you get the kids asking questions like, oh, so if I could just build a spaceship, I could go and get loads of diamonds and I'd be rich. So I love it. You're, you're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to get it kind of more and more interesting and relatable. What kind of preparation does that take to get a one hour lesson interesting? How long do you spend preparing for it? I would say that for me to plan a lesson and put effort in and to really make sure that it's engaging, that every bit of that lesson keeps kids focused and I know that they are thinking about the thing I'm telling them I would say that's probably going to take for me probably about half an hour at the beginning of your career 
I know teachers who were staying in school till eight o'clock. A lot of it could be this idea about bonding and covalent bonding and diamonds and things. That's brilliant and it's really good to say and to put in. But if I'm using a PowerPoint, I want to make sure that there's some kind of image that demonstrates what I'm seeing. So finding the perfect thing and putting that in or TikTok seem to be a good one. Now you can copy and paste the link and embed it into the PowerPoint and it shows the kids instantly what you're talking about. But there's a fine line. You've got to be careful not to distract from the main thing, the cognitive load of some students. They're not able to take on that video that you've just put on and the information. So you really need to be careful with what you're doing on that note. Tell us, tell me a bit more about cognitive load. So what's the idea behind cognitive load and how do you manage for it? So cognitive load, again, I'm trying to do as much with, with it as possible in that there's only so much that you can acquire into your into your load, into your brain. Um, and that's different for everybody. Some people have a very low cognitive load. Some people have a very high cognitive load. And it's all based on what you are providing. Are they reusing it? So if I'm giving them a fact for one lesson on a Monday, that's all well and good, but that's not the most important thing they're going to learn that day. They're probably going to learn something better at home from Snapchat. So unless I repeat that, unless I have that retrieval, it's not going to stick into long-term memory. So they have this little bubble and you can put something in there, but unless you keep working at it and keep practicing and keep putting it in there, it's not going to stay within the long-term. And that's the job of the teacher, isn't it? The job of the teacher is to make sure that all information goes into long-term memory. So you've got to be interesting in the moment, but you've also got to get translate that interest into sticking in terms of their memory and recognizing they've got a limited cognitive load or, or an uncertain cognitive load. Okay, fine. And, th and that stickiness, I'm hearing you say, is about having an image or a metaphor or something that they can kind of cling on to that's the kind of the center of gravity for how they think about remembrance, is that right? Yeah, it definitely helps. And I think that's the fine line. That's the thing that you need to understand your relationships with your kids and you need to understand the cognitive science behind it in that what's too much, what's too little. There's loads of research say that copying off a whiteboard doesn't do anything because there's no process. There's nothing going on to, to change that. We spoke about dual coding. But if I say to the kids, right, there's this information on the board. I want you to turn that into a picture. That, that increases the, the, the cognitive sort of rigor and then it's more likely to stick. And because they've now associated it with something, it's making it more likely to stick in that long-term memory. How has your teaching style evolved? You've been doing it six years. How has it evolved over the last six years? I think the big evolution for me is, like we mentioned earlier, is this sort of boundary between coming in as a younger teacher and feeling, right, I need to be really matey. And it's a mistake that I made. And I remember there was a lot of teachers who were told when they first started, don't smile until Christmas, which on the face of it, it sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds horrific that some poor little year seven who was really scared about when school's going to walk into a classroom with a scowling teacher who never smiles until Christmas. Um, and that's a big message and I can see why. I can see because then you are consistent. The kids know where they stand and then you can start reeling it back in and you can start adding the little bits of humor and you can start because the kids know where they stand. And I think it was a bit, I was quite naive into thinking that you could have the best of both, that you could be matey to try and get them engaging on board to, oh, actually, they're not really listening to me now. <laughs> like, I've kind of lost them. I've, I've told my joke. I wouldn't claim to be a naturally funny person. A lot of it's quite quite well scripted. Um, and it's like, oh, well, actually, now they're, they're just talking about the football. Um, 
right, how do I, right, boys, can you stop that now? It's like, oh, they're not really listening to me. <laughs> it's like, but that's because you've developed this friend level. Yes, okay. okay. And then I would say it's much more difficult to go from that level to then, Mr. Brown, why are you being really strict today? Little do they know that you've had a talk with yourself in the mirror. It's like, right, tomorrow I'm going to go really hard on them. And that no more smiling. No more smiling, <laughs> exactly. yeah. And that lack of consistency is not good for our kids. It's not good for our students. So I've developed now that I would say I'm in year six. I'm just about the right balance, I would say. The interesting end line on that ad, which is every lesson shapes a life. Do you think that's true? I actually do. Because one lesson could make a kid decide to do something different. I spoke to you at the beginning of this conversation about I believe that we should be making good thinkers and good people, not necessarily brilliant scientists. And if one lesson can change the outlook of a child on the world, have you not made a difference? Have you not done something that can change the outlook of that child for the rest of their lives? I'm not in it for every lesson shapes a life because I want that person to remember me forever. It's the idea that anything that I do could make a child become a better person. Whether it's science, maths, DT, PE, it's not always like that. You do get some bad lessons. You get some awful lessons. You get lessons where you just want the day to end and you're actually looking at the registers at the beginning of the day to hope that some kids aren't in. And and it, it sounds awful, and I, but I, I don't mind being honest about it because I, hopefully if, if, if teachers listen to this, they'll relate to it in that it can be so difficult. But when you do get those sort of light bulb moments, when you get those instances of that lesson has actually changed because... Even if a kid's remembered covalent bonding, even if a kid has remembered that diamonds are the hardest things in the world, they'll remember that for the rest of their lives because Mr. Brown said so. You've changed somebody, haven't you? Okay, so let me ask you a question um, that I'm asking everybody, which is um, you've got some new neighbours. They invite you and your wife round for a bite to eat of a Thursday night midweek. Um, you're a bit tired. It's been a long day. You're sitting next to these new neighbours. You don't really have a lot in common. The conversation is proving remarkably dull. How do you make it more interesting? How would you take what you've learned in teaching and use it to create and stimulate a more interesting conversation? I'm quite an outgoing person, much like my dad as well, in really chatting to people and, and trying to speak to as many people as possible. For me personally, I would want to know as much about that person as possible and offer a sentence starter in a way like, like you would do with the kids. If I wanted somebody to engage with me, it's like, what do you do for work? And then once you can get on, I mean, not many people like talking about work, I suppose, but just listening and acting folks like, oh, right. And what, what does that, what does that mean for you? And what, how does that, is that difficult? Is that easy? I think having that, that attitude towards being an open listener makes a big difference. Me and my wife spoke about this the other night in that we absolutely love when people love anything. So for example, we watched a program in which these people were obsessed with pencil museums and it's not something that I would ever be interested in, but I love watching people be so in love and have such passion about something, anything. Like I, I, like people who collect stamps and train enthusiasts and people who stand at the end of airport runways. And I absolutely love that because that's a real passion and that's something that you could talk to them about. If you, if you could find that one thing that is their absolute be all and end all, that is the engaging part of the conversation, isn't it? So just pulling it all together, thinking, reflecting on the things we've talked about. I want to be a teacher. I'm about to do my first lesson tomorrow. What are your three bits of advice about how to be a more interesting teacher? 
relating to the real world is number one. The kids want to know, well, actually, you're doing this because in the real world, this is really interesting. So I think these sentence starters, for any teacher, having that title at the beginning of a lesson, having that sentence starter would really be my first thing. Having metaphors, analogies and stories and allowing to be yourself and personal and allowing the kids into your life a little bit I would like to say that the kids feel like they're more comfortable with me and they can engage in my lessons because they know that I've got two kids, a dog and my wife who's a nurse who probably sees them all at the walk-in centre and expressing that there isn't that divide. Do you remember when it was like when you used to see a teacher out of school and it was like, oh my God, they actually leave school. Like they don't sleep at school. So like my, my kids see me at the gym. They see me walking my dog, allowing that personal connection is an okay thing to do. And I can, I can understand why a lot of teachers wouldn't want to do that. They want to keep school and life separate. I completely understand, but I feel like you're missing a trick. And the third one is just utter passion. If you're teaching the rock cycle, for example, if you start that lesson by going, well, this isn't very good, but we'll get through it. You've just lost everybody. And that is criminal. It's just, it, it's absolutely awful that that actually still happens when you, what you should be saying is you should be saying, we're doing this because on different planets, blah, 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 we've got the opportunity to learn about volcanoes and why we're standing on a planet that is rock compared to other planets. And tone is a really important part, but having that raised tone in avoid the monotonous, boring, let's get through this. If I saw those three things from a teacher interviewing, I think that they will be a very effective member of staff and make a difference to kids. Thank you very much, Edison. That was really great. Thank you. There was a letter to the Times newspaper recently that I cut out and pinned above my desk because I loved it so much. It read, Further to your report about giving maths a less scary name, the word maths is intimidating and numeracy sounds boring. My daughter's school once introduced a lunchtime maths club. No one turned up. The school then introduced a lunchtime puzzle club. Everybody came. I love the power of changing the context for making a subject interesting to people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in it. Like Addison's covalent bonding being framed through the showers of diamonds you find on the surface of Saturn. And at the same time, there was so much more in this conversation to reflect on, wasn't there? I mean, I've been in the communication business for 40 years, and I was initially struck that I'd never come across what seemed like very crucial concepts. Cognitive load, chunking, dual coding, adaptive teaching. I'd never come across those before. And then I wondered if actually we had once in the communications business intuitively grasped them, but then forgotten them. You could argue that much of the really iconic advertising from the 60s and 70s, for instance, was a form of dual coding. Brand characters like Snap, Crackle and Pop, little Rice Krispies characters, or the Pillsbury Doughboy, and jingles, in fact, that people can still sing today. They're embedded in our long-term memories, whether we want them to be or not. But that's not how the communications business thinks or acts anymore. So we did understand dual coding. We did understand that at some point, but, but now we've kind of moved on. And indeed, when, I, when I'm presenting or speaking, I very rarely think about cognitive load in that very structured, disciplined way. I probably put far too much into this episode, for instance. I should be much more consciously chunking it, and I'm definitely going to be thinking through that as I iterate my way through the podcast episodes. And I certainly don't see it in a disciplined and consistent way to prepare, as Addison does, by pushing a concept through its first, second, third expressions to arrive at a way of bringing it to life in a way that will really capture the imagination of somebody who isn't necessarily interested in the subject I want to talk about. 
And all of these concepts about how to make important subjects not only interesting but memorably interesting, these surely matter to us at a broader level because many of us are, at some point in our professional personal lives, in the education or re-education business. We may be trying to get some area of our business to, to rethink what they're doing, to do something in a different way, or get our customers to rethink what they know about us, or perhaps we're asking a parent or a partner or a child to rethink something that they're doing. And if we want or need to do that, then perhaps we need to push past what in education is called the curse of knowledge and push our core thought to make it really engaging and interesting as Addison prepares to do with his science concepts before every lesson in a way that sticks. And what an inspirational teacher I found him, by the way. I only wish I'd been taught science by somebody with half his care and craft as a teacher. They're lucky to have him. My final thought is this. I came into this conversation with Addison as a teacher thinking there were two core skills that a teacher needed to have. One was behavior management. I needed to make sure that Adam didn't run right in the back of the class. And the second was I needed to make potentially dull subjects interesting. One of the fascinating things about the conversation with Addison was that his mum was also a teacher, as you'll have heard, and she'd been a teacher for 30 years. And they'd actually discussed this issue before coming onto the podcast. And her reflection was behavior management hadn't been such an issue 30 years ago. Uh, and the short attention spans that children face today make it more of an issue now. And that what that actually meant was behavior management and making dull subjects interesting are not actually two separate skills. They've become increasingly one and the same skill. If you want to keep good behavior in the class, actually being more interesting not only engages their minds, but actually engages their attentiveness and therefore their focus and concentration. I think that's really interesting at some level for all of us. Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. A big thank you to Ruth, my editor, and Ross, my producer. And join us next time when we'll be talking to Gemma Parkinson, Global Marketing and Business Development Director at Mode Hennessy. Here's a little taster of Gemma. For this audience, they were young and dynamic, hungry, ambitious marketeers. I suppose I knew that a presentation wasn't going to cut it. So a performance needed to offer something else, something memorable, because nobody wants to sit in front of endless slides and presentations. <laughs> So we had to find a way to cut through it. This was about shock and awe and believing that this team were coming here to shake the tree. See you then.